Hello, Systematic listeners. I just wanted to let you know that today's episode does contain some swearing because I'm not going to censor John Roderick. We're kind of making podcast history here. How's that? Uh, For me, at least, because I am podcasting from bed. Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. I'm here once again with one of my favorite guests, John Roderick. How's it going, John? Yay, hello. I'm great. Hello, Systematic listeners. You're not great, and I may have already edited this part in, but you are you are podcasting from a horizontal position in bed in dire straits. Yeah, yeah. I am uh, I'm supine <laughs> and uh, podcasting from bed, and I don't know. I'm sure somebody's podcasted from bed before. I have tried. I have not. It has not made it to air because my throat does not do well in horizontal positions as far as vocal clarity. Oh, I I can't sleep on my back because I choke. And it's not just because I got fat. This happened when I was skinny, too. Interesting or interdasting, as we uh, say that uh, I wonder about that. Maybe. Well, monitor me if I start choking and stop breathing. (laughs) then we'll have to cut this podcast short. That that makes sense. So you were talking about how you are uh, back into songwriting again, which I am personally ecstatic to hear about, and you were focusing on lyrics. I personally am... I, I, I Lyrics matter more to me than any part of a song. I appreciate good music. I love it. But if the lyrics are stupid, I, I for example... And not to upset anybody, but Dave Matthews, I can't listen to. Oh, because uh, Dave Matthews has uh, dumb lyrics? Well, okay, so I've learned that it's uh, it's a matter of context. Uh, Things don't make sense to me at given points in my life that may make sense to me later, that may apply, that may uh, resonate with me later. But up to this point in my life, I find them just empty. Yeah. How do you feel about the mid-70s work of Paul McCartney? You know what? I, I couldn't say. I, because I, I find, I mean, he's a wonderful artist, and I love those songs. But if you even let your ears hear the words, I'm not even saying, like, dive in and study them, but just even allow the words to gain purchase in your mind, you'll, have, you'll throw yourself to the floor because they mean... They mean less than nothing, right? I mean, he has put words in to substitute for vowel sounds, but he should have just gone, because it makes just as much sense. Scat McCartney? Mm -hmm. Right. He should have scatted him. He's basically (laughs) scatting him. (laughs) But I I get that. So, So what I haven't been able to write new lyrics. I used to write a lot of songs, and about 10 years ago, coinciding with me, you know, finishing my last rehab stint, settling down, getting married, I stopped being able to write anything that I cared about. What what got you back into a mode where you could opine in that way? Hmm. Well, you know, the enemy of writing lyrics, especially, is self-seriousness. And I suffer from you know i'm i'm self aware enough to know when i'm being self serious but it's so it's so uh enticing to be self serious right you're just like you're so important 
and your lyrics are so important. And um, when I got done making my last record, I really felt like I had I had conquered that tendency. I was ready to go back into the studio immediately. I didn't want to leave the studio. I remember we were packing up and and moving out, and I was just like, no, 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 I just want to stay in here. This is where I belong. This is so wonderful. We could just start making another record right now. And uh, and I, you know, and I made all these mental notes, all these post-it notes in my mind, like, do not make this mistake again, where you, you know, where you, you forget the crucial lesson, which is just go for it, write the stuff, and then be ruthless in editing it, and you know, like. No first thought that comes into your mind is worth anything. <laughs> it, you know, have to get in there and fight, fight your own stuff and, and just barf it out and then chop it up. And then I went out on tour for basically two years and it was wonderful touring. You know, the band was really in sync with each other and we were out there in the world and we had, we had great tours. We had uh, you know, we spent a half a year in Europe and it was, it was spectacular the whole time. And then we came back and it was time to write our next record. And we dove into the music part of it and we recorded 13 songs in the, in the studio and did a great job of recording them. And we spent a, then additional time overdubbing and, and putting everything into the music but when it came time to write the lyrics, like this cloud of self-seriousness had descended upon me so that I wrote all this, I threw all the, these words at the page and then I forgot to be brutal with them. You know, all of a sudden all these dumb lyrics that were clearly dumb, <laughs> I couldn't get past. I was looking at them and I was like, oh, I'm, I lost it, I'm... This is just so, so stupid. But I'd go in there and I'd move words around, but I didn't, you know, I didn't go in there with a, with a scimitar. Yeah. And so then I lost confidence that I could ever write again because everything I, I wrote was garbage. And I just forgot that everything you write is garbage. You know, the, it's not writing, it's editing. That's your, that's your main job. And so, yeah, I just... I just went off the rails and a couple of things have happened in the last few years. Um, ben Lee, uh, uh, excellent songwriter from Australia, texted me one day and he was like, I've got this thing where I've got this indie rock choir and we're asking songwriters to write songs for this choir and they're going to do a choir rendition of the tunes. Essentially you know, acapella in the room with a little bit of band. He said, would you write a song for it? And I was like, sure. And I sat down and I wrote a song in like 15 minutes. And I recorded it on my phone and I sent it to him. And I don't know why I was able to do that in that instance, but it was a, it was a perfectly good song. And I sent it to them and they were pleased with it and they recorded it. And it, that planted a little seed. Well, it took me another... I don't know, over a year to, to go for that again. Let's analyze this. What was it because there was, there were parameters that you had a non empty page to begin with that made it possible to 
just do that in 15 minutes? Uh, there were parameters. There were parameters, but I mean, over the last, since 2008, when I've been trying to write, there have been lots of times when somebody said, hey, would you write a song for this? Or, hey, you, you know, like the people at my label made multiple, multiple attempts to say, okay, this song <laughs> should be done by June 3rd. Well, see, I'm not I, talking about deadlines. I'm talking about, see, for me, if someone said, here, we need this and we need it by, you know, Friday, I, my brain locks up. Yeah. I can't do that. So what I'm curious about is what were the circumstances? Did you eventually figure out what the circumstances were that allowed you to just do it and your brain to be both creative and focused at the same time? No, no, I don't know. And, you know, I didn't write I didn't write that song with the idea of a choir, right? He said, this is for a choir, and I was like, okay. But I proceeded to write uh, sort of a typical John Roderick song to an acoustic guitar with too many words, you know, <laughs> and sent it off just like, boop. And, and I, you know, I think during that, during that 30 minute period, like I, I think what it was, was I wrote a, I wrote a thing. I liked it for about an hour. And then I listened to what I had recorded and I realized it was garbage and I was sad and frustrated and I sat down and I drank a Gatorade or whatever. And then I said, you know, if you're, you're just going to throw this away. Why don't you just take another shot at it? And I went in and chopped it up, right? I wrote, I rewrote it. And this was all happening very fast. And I think partly it was that maybe I didn't give a fuck. I mean, I, I like Ben Lee, but maybe it just was, there was just enough of, eh, whatever, you know. But I went in and I, and I did a ruthless edit. And I took out of that version of the song, the thing I thought was best about it. I had written this complicated chorus that was like, oh, so cool, so smart. Lyrically or musically? Mm, musically and lyrically. Like I had, I had tried to do some ambitious thing. And I went in and I, I realized that actually that was the part that wasn't working. And I just cleaved it and wrote another thing that was equally interesting this is within the same day? Yeah. That's like, impressive. Because I didn't, I mean, and I, the thing is I had, I've written songs, you know, the song Scared Straight from our second record and the song uh, Hindsight from the third record, I wrote both of those songs in the studio. Uh, the lyrics within, you know, not only in the studio, but like with the whole band on the other side of the glass pointing at their watches <laughs> and saying, today's the last day in the studio. There is no more money. And this song, and we have completely recorded this song, so it's, oh, and there are also only nine songs finished. So this is the 10th song, which is always the goal. So you work well under pressure. Well, I, but I, but it has to be, you can't manufacture that kind of pressure. That's just like, through the entire recording of the record, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get to that song. I'm going to get to that song. And then it was this moment where I'm looking through all my notebooks and I'm out there sweat pouring down my head. And then I finish the lyrics kind of right as I'm doing the last take because I've done 10 takes. And at the end of every one, I'm like, Ugh, that, ugh, that one's no good. I mean, those, those words don't work. And scribble, scribble, scribble. And so, you know, the take that's on the record is the 
last take of anything. We started to <laughs> mix it as soon as I was done. So what's the difference for you between real pressure and an artificial deadline that you imposed on yourself? Is it um, a commitment to other people or is it something more internal? Well, I'm not sure that real pressure in recording is even possible to manufacture anymore because when I made that last record, we were recording in 2005. We were recording in an expensive studio and we were recording to two inch tape and uh, now the record we've been working on since 2009 has been entirely recorded in computers, entirely recorded for the most part in people's houses. And sure that, you know, that freedom and that flexibility. Technicality aside, though, what in that situation, you, you, you said it has to be real pressure and real pressure indicates to me something, uh, a, a deadline beyond your control that other people actually will suffer if you don't meet it. Oh, or that I will suffer. I mean, it was always about money. There you go. You know, you're in a studio and you have, it's not money because every record is partly about money, right? I, I mean, I should hope if, so. If I had put, a, if I had put this record out in 2009, um, I would have made more money over the last 10 years. Stands but, to reason. You know, but I, <laughs> but I sort of was like, ah, that's just, you know, that's just money. That's fantasy money or that's money that'll come along one day. But when you're in the studio and you have paid somebody five or ten thousand dollars, there's you don't have another ten thousand dollars waiting, right? And so it's like you the money's gone already. If you don't, if you don't finish this, then you know you've you've blown it. So that was, I mean, that was the pressure. And to record at home onto your computer costs nothing. To take another day, to spend another day on a on a uh, tambourine part, it just it costs nothing, and so that and the sense the sense that the studio imparts to the project that this is a real project, this is something real that you're doing, and things matter, particularly two inch tape. It's like there's <laughs> there's not that many tracks, you know, right? There's sixteen tracks, and you don't. You don't use any track frivolously. And I, you know, I'm sure if I called up all the tracks on this album, there are 90 tracks on every song. Because you're like, oh, 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 I know, I know. What if we, you know, what if I put air in a balloon and and then let it squeak out and we put it through a we put it through a delay pedal? Yeah, let's try that. Well, that's another <laughs> track. It's, it's on there somewhere. So you remember the days when punching in and out was a matter of survival. Oh sure, and you've got you've got <laughs> tracks that have a rhythm guitar part, a you know a tambourine in the chorus, a lead pops in, and then that's where the horns and the outro go, and that's all on one track. And you're sitting, <laughs> you're moving moving the fader up and down as you're mixing. I mean, yeah. you remember those mixes where the the whole band is in there, the producer, <laughs> you, you've got ten fingers, and there's three tracks on each hand. I've generally found that situation to be uh, less productive than oh. just having one person who represents the rest of the band because a lead guitarist will never be happy with the solo mix 
oh, you don't give him, you don't, you never give somebody <laughs> their own instrument, right? Okay. But you, you listen to the, you listen to it go by a million times. You set everything, you listen to it go by, and then you're like, oh, that thing just needs to be slightly louder in here. And you, but you, but it only needs to be slightly louder for that four bars. And so you, you, you know, you just have to micro move it. And every fader ends up needing to move at some point during the mix. And there just aren't enough, the producer can't do it all. And there are just too many things that you're coordinating. And so, so a mix used to be a dance that you did live. And if you got one, and everybody was like, I think I, I think I got what I tried to do. I think I moved my faders in the right order. Did you? <laughs> and and when, when everybody feels like, yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty good. It feel felt right. You know, that's your mix. And yeah. now, you know, you can make those micro adjustments. It's all automated. You can work on a, you know, work on a mix for months. But you can also the computer will allow you to do exactly what you need. Yes. And so anyway, all those all those things that have taken the pressure out of recording and made it easy also make it is so that there's no restriction and or or few restrictions. And that ended up being kind of inhibiting to me. In fact, in, in every aspect of my life over the last 10 years, when I had enough resources to give myself the freedom I'd always felt like I wanted, that freedom in almost every case caused me to be less useful. Um, and, in, and in the end, kind of more um, morose. Because it was just like, well, I don't have to. I don't have to do anything anymore. It turns out I'm somebody that if he doesn't have to do anything, he won't. But I'm trying to, you know, I'm I'm sort of I feel reinvigorated now and um, and back on the case and I've made I'm you know I I can't emphasize how much progress I've made in the last two months that had eluded me for. For nine years i didn't know this had happened when i contacted you to come back mm. but given that the last episode you and i recorded uh was titled roderick dot 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 and it left me every time i hear it it leaves me with a melancholy kind of you use the phrase all of the ways an adult man can defeat himself mm. and i have been really hoping that next time you came on, you would have a uh, an uplifting continuation to that. Mm -hmm. So this is I'm ecstatic to hear that all of this is happening. Well, and a lot of it. I mean, the last time we talked, I had been I was I'd been suffering from what I characterized as depression for several years, and you know I'd always sort of fought depression from the time I was twelve years old. Sure. So it had always been a familiar friend and companion. And but but from the time sort of circa 2007 it just descended on me and it never lifted and by 2010 it was just an enormous burden. And so 
our conversation, you know, the fatalism that you heard in me in in those episodes and in that sort of like in every way a man can defeat himself sort of way was just a product of this this cloud um, where I ne- I never recovered from it and when I when I was really low I was just I was incapacitated and I, had, I didn't see any I didn't see any solution to it and I didn't like the idea of taking antidepressants and I was I was opposed to uh, psychiatry. I was really opposed to psychology because I think it's a pseudoscience. But even psychiatry just seemed to be a thing that had that had lost its way to me. Um, but in the in the past, you know, this time last year, I was sitting in a room with a bunch of friends contemplating a run for the Seattle City Council. And I pursued this, this run for public office. And I, you know, I spent a solid six months of my life doing a thing that it turned out I hated. That was the, (laughs) you know, it was so hard and so just sort of miserable. And it just confirmed all the bad things I thought about, about politics and the downtown <laughs> asp, you know, just the downtown, let's just call it that. And, um, and so I, I really, really became a desperate, desperate person because I was, I'm still suffering from all these other ailments. And now I was in a situation where every morning I woke up at six o'clock in the morning, already in the middle of a panic attack and worked frantically until 11 o'clock at night and, you know, and then lay in bed just churning on all the things that had happened. So when I lost in the primary, you know, I spit out the other side and there was a, a tremendous relief that I was free of having to engage with that, in, in that world. And, you know, what you're supposed to do when you lose a race in the primary is stay engaged and continue to be a player and then run again. And every now you know everybody and you know all the tricks and the rules. And so you run again and then you're taken much more seriously. And then the second time you run or the third time you run, you win. But the day I lost, I was like, goodbye. I no more want to interact with the downtown um, than I want to interact with the you know, uh, with the Iraqi army, like I just, I have no interest in you. I'm an (laughs) artist. I, what was I thinking? I was free to make my own thing before. And now I'm downtown and it's like, and somebody's yelling, yelling at me about the basketball stadium and somebody else (laughs) is mad about the height limits of apartment development in their neighborhood. And they don't care about any other neighborhood in the town. It's like, ah, go fuck yourselves. You people. I used to be able to sit with a guitar and just dream up my, my, um, my little narratives, and, and that was my job. So I came out of that, and I, you know, I had a real talk with myself, and I said, look, you just tried to join the normals. And if you're going to try to join the normals, well, the normals also go to 
mental health professionals and go to doctors, right? You're in, you're in your mid-40s and you haven't had your prostate examined <laughs> since you were 36 and, and, and that's a bad plan, right? You've got moles on your back. You've got, there's a lot of problems with you. You can't see anymore. You're limping around. You should go to a doctor, A, and you should talk to that doctor about your about this cloud. And it was all part of this feeling like, all right, you're still, you know, you're still like on the on the cusp of of normals. Stay here long enough to long enough to acknowledge that you are a member of the world, you know? Yeah. So I went to a doctor and and the doctor, the the MD, the the general internist, was a straight-talking lady from New York, and she said, after you know me sitting on the chair and she's listening to me with a stethoscope and asking me questions. Ten minutes in, she was like, "Look, I don't, I'm not a I'm not a, a mental health professional, but you seem to be someone suffering from undiagnosed bipolar disorder." And I said, it's not undiagnosed. People have been telling me that for 15 years, for 25 years. And she said, well, Jesus, that's a serious condition. Why haven't you done anything about it? And I was like, people diagnose you with shit all the time. It's all bullshit. And she was like, it's not bullshit. And one of the ways we know that, one of the ways we identify bipolar people is that people diagnose them with it all the time. <laughs> and I was like, bleh. And she said, she said a very telling thing. She said, look, I didn't come to visit you. <laughs> right. I'm not, you know, I didn't come and tell you what I thought. You came here. I'm telling you this. And so, so I took her advice. I went to a, a, uh, a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was like, as soon as you walked in the door, you know, I mean, I asked you a few questions. You filled out a couple of forms, but you have bipolar too. That's what you're suffering from. It's not depression. And if, you'd, if you had ever accepted someone's diagnosis of you as depression, as depressed, and if they had given you depression medication, it would have been disastrous. So in that sense, it's a good thing that you, that you think psychology is a pseudoscience. <laughs> but I'm telling you you have bipolar, which is a thing we don't know what it is, and, here, and there's medicine for it. So if you take bipolar medicine and you don't have bipolar disorder, it won't do anything to you. It's not like, it's not like Ritalin. It, it's not a, it's not a mood alterer. It's not a speed. It's a, it's a thing that only works on bipolar. He said, I don't have bipolar. If I took 15 of these pills, it would do nothing. So from one bipolar person to another, can I ask what uh, is working for you right now? Lamictil. Hey, me too. Lamotrigin. Yes. And it's I this wonderful material. I have found it very effective. It has antidepressant qualities, mood stabilizing qualities, uh, even some stimulant qualities to a very low degree, plus uh, anti-anxiety qualities. All of those things have been true of me, and it and it relieved me of paranoia. It really it, it put a it put a floor on what had pr prior been a bottomless chasm, and it lifted up a ceiling that had. That I mean, when I was young and I had a manic episode, there was no ceiling. I was flying in space. <laughs> Been there. 
But then as time went on and as I got older, suddenly there was this roof on how high I would get. My manic episodes just turned out to be, they just felt sort of normal. I mean, obviously last year when I was like, I'm going to run for city council, that was a manic episode. To some extent, but... Right? A little bit grandiose, but it didn't, <laughs> it didn't feel like... That's what a politician is. Yeah, I know, right? But they're all <laughs> sociopaths. They're successful uh, manic people, not, you know, they they don't crash. But it never felt it never felt like it used to feel, which was just like, now I can, you know, I mean, probably every record album I ever made, I was in the court, I was in the middle of a mania. Absolute delusional state, right? Well, but you know, this is the thing about bipolar two people is that it never becomes delusional to the point that you gamble away your house or you. Let's or say you, delusions of grandeur. You, you maintain a foot in reality. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but that part of you that says, no, you can't do that, disappears. Absolutely. Would you say, and and my biggest fear, I don't know, 15 years ago when I started uh, medicating my bipolar was that I wouldn't have moods at all anymore. And I went through a few treatments that did make me feel like that. But what I liked best about Lamictal I still have moods. Like I, I feel like I have normal moods. Not it, re it, it returned me to a to my normal state, which initially felt like a mania. I started taking it, and I was like, "Holy, holy moly!" <laughs> that goes away, huh? Well, <laughs> it, but what what went away was the feeling that that was. I mean, I had forgotten that that was my normal way, right? Like minus. Uh, the bipolar, it's not like I was ever a usual person. <laughs> right. You know, when I was seven years old, I wasn't like a normal seven-year-old. And so it returned me to this state of kind of, uh, of unusualness that had been dampened. And so although that, although that feeling of like, is this going to last... Because that's the thing about every mania, right? You're like, oh, please don't go away. This is where I want to be. And I had that feeling again. And, the, and, that, and that fear that, that I was going to crash. But I've sustained it. And I haven't crashed. Now it doesn't feel manic. It just feels normal. And I started, you know, that, I started taking in a, a small effective dose of this stuff at the beginning of December and I started writing songs. I wrote a song almost immediately and recorded it on my phone, didn't know what to do with it and texted it to Amy Mann. I was like, here, I wrote a song, uh, here, I know you're making an album right now. Um, here's a text of me playing it into my phone. And she wrote back, she was like, this is an amazing song, I'm going to put it on my record. Nice. And now it's, you know, now uh, I, I uh, texted her the other day and she was like, we're in the middle of putting a string section on that tune. <laughs> I was like, shit. You know, and that, had, that was the first thing I did when I started taking this medicine. And so I, I was scared of this album that, that was sitting there on my computer, this like, this thing that had collected such an enormous weight. It just felt like a, like a cartoon anvil over my head. But then sort of at the end of January, I was like, you know what? 
just see what happens. Go in there. And I, you know, I've I've written the lyrics to six of the thirteen songs in the last month and a half. So credit to this. Credit to this. Um, pseudoscience <laughs> you know for lack of a better term I mean what was amazing to me as they were as this uh, doctor was diagnosing me with bipolar was that they uh, or the psychiatrist the the one was very candid about the fact that they have no idea what bipolar disorder is they don't know I mean they they can tell what they can tell you what the chemistry of the medicine is and they can tell you that the ekg readings in the brain during a mood shift mimic those of minor seizures yeah right they can say that but they don't know what it is and he said you know we discovered lamictal by accident because we gave this seizure medication to somebody that was also bipolar and it don't. was you know yeah. resolved their bipolar so now we give seizure medicine to bipolar people and see what happens but it's <laughs> completely like it's like, here, lick this poisonous toad from the South American jungle, and if it, you know, and it cures your pleurisy. Witchcraft. Uh, right, it's a little bit. But, but you know, it kind of restored my belief in, in, that, in that, that nature that humans have of, of exploring and pushing the boundaries and, like, what... All that, all that craziness around medicine now where where a new drug has to go through this incredibly expensive and long process to get approved, which makes drugs expensive and which, you know, you can't experiment anymore, right? One right. person gets a bloody nose mm -hmm. and all of a sudden a, a drug that might be effective in treating cancer is just off the, you know, it's, it's eliminated. And the TV commercials get really long. <laughs> the TV commercials get long and all of a sudden... <laughs> Some guy with gray hair is playing blues guitar, and then he's sitting in a bathtub. <laughs> while, you know, a, like, while a woman explains to you that you, you could die or get a bloody nose. Or, yeah. yeah. But, I, you know, and, and we spend so much money on, on, like, erectile dysfunction drugs. But all these, all these amazing treatments, you know, we're, so, we're kind of frightened of them, but we keep exploring. And it isn't just about profit. It's like, what can we do? So, I, so I'm grateful for it. I'm stunned by it because I thought uh, I would spend the rest of my life being contemptuous because I had seen so many of my friends take antidepressants and then their eyes just glazed over. Yeah, yeah, that was my fear too. Yeah, and they and all every one of them reported like, "Well, I'm not depressed anymore." It's I'm nothing now. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of side effects, but at least I'm not depressed. And I was like, "No, I don't want that," because when I'm, you know, when I'm bananas. That's the best time. <laughs> so here's the one warning I, I would give you after my own 12, 13 years on Lamictal now. Oh, you've been taking it for 12 years? Yeah. Holy shite. Yeah. So the only real problem I've ever had, and it took me years to figure out that it was to blame, mm -hmm. is this weird sexual dysfunction where everything seems normal, but you can't finish. Really? Yeah. So if that ever happens to you, just lower your dosage a little. Huh. I dropped 50 milligrams off of my rather large dosage, and everything's fine now. Well, I'm taking the minimum effective dose. Which is 150? Yeah, 100, 150. Yeah. And, uh, or 200, maybe. So, you know, still small, 
And um, and as soon as, you know, he was like ramping it up. And as soon as it started working, I was like, I don't want any more. I don't want any less. <laughs> don't mess around with me. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You just have to go back when it stops working. You have to go back. You have to take less of it when it stops working. You don't get to make the call, though. I've learned that. <laughs> you have to go back to your pseudoscientist. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, yeah, so I didn't want to go back to him at all. And then a lot of my <laughs> friends were like, you can't just stop seeing the psychiatrist <laughs> one month after you start seeing him. This is true. And he, he said that, too. He was like, <laughs> look, you, I'm not going to give you more of these pills. You know, it's a prescription. I can stop. I can only give them to you a month at a time. You have to come talk to me. I was like, Ugh, all right. I don't want to, but okay. Note that so, with Lamictal, they can give you three months at a time, and most insurance will accept that. So if you want to avoid monthly visits, yeah, it's well, cheaper that way. I'm pursuing this notion that like some things in the normal world are uh, valid. <laughs> and how old are you now? 47. That's a, that's a reasonable age to decide there's some validity to normality. Meh, meh. I mean, let's see. <laughs> let's see what happens. I mean, years ago, I was 26 probably. No, older than that. I was 28 before I acknowledged that there was some validity to insurance. I was opposed to it. But, yeah, I was 26 when I acknowledged that Having a state issued ID card was something I was gonna, I was going to acquiesce to. Was this the result of a uh, an unfortunate incident? No, I mean from from twenty from twenty four to twenty six, I had no ID. Uh, I drank in bars where they knew me, and. So I never presented my ID there. But I could not go to bars. I could not order drinks in places where I wasn't known. Um, and, you know, if a police person interacted with me, I had no ID. So I would always give them my information and they would determine my identity. Um, but I felt like having an ID card was an, was an infringement upon my rights, <laughs> and I wasn't a I you know I wasn't a, um, a obviously not a a Tea Party person or a um, libertarian libertarian of any of of most kinds. I just felt like I understand why everyone else has ID and insurance. It just doesn't <laughs> apply to me. I am a free man. And, you know, little by little, and I think what it was, was as I, as I required, as I expected to have recourse to the law, when I got robbed, I called the police and expected them to respond. When I was injured, you know, I, I wanted recourse to the law. And then it dawned on me that you cannot have the one without the other. You are responsible to the law if you want recourse to it. And if you want to be a free man and live in an encampment down by the railroad tracks, and when you get hurt, you bear the wound, then all right, make your case, right? But you don't, you don't deny the government's right and then expect a government subsidy. You know, that's just, that is... Um, you know, that's a contradiction in terms. So when I realized that I was not going to live in an encampment down by the railroad <laughs> tracks anymore <laughs> and I wanted to, I wanted to cash checks and I wanted to 
call the cops when I needed to call the cops. I said, all right, I will. Sure. I, it makes sense to me now. My part in this is that you, you willingly join. You don't join under duress. You don't, you're not bitter about it. If you if insurance is required, so forth and so on. Right. Yeah. But, but like, Going to a psychologist and having them tell you you're depressed just felt like going to a fortune teller and having her tell you that one day you're going to come into money. You do realize there's actual, like, science behind it. I mean, I've studied psychology. I know what, this, I know what the science is about it. But Okay. I mean, science in that there has been a, a process of studies and a scientific method behind I'm not saying that it's chemistry, although yeah. to some extent there's a lot of chemistry involved. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's quite a bit because I was a literature major. There's quite a bit of, well, a comparative history of ideas major. You know, the scientific method can be misapplied. You know, the, the conclusions you draw when you're in the liberal arts. And I think this is a classic error applying the scientific method to liberal arts. Um, they, they don't, in a lot of cases, belong together. A lot of what, what happens in psychology is speculative. It's dream analysis. You know, it's, it's, it is not science. It is sophistry. And, and so it works if you believe in it, right? In the same way that, that, Fortune telling kind of so works. So this is your really. definition then of pseudoscience. It, it, you know, I say that knowing that it's provocative. <laughs> I say pseudoscience in order to make psychologists mad and write <laughs> emails. Right? I understand what psychology is. I'm not. I'm not somebody. I'm not an anti-vaxer. <laughs> right? Like I'm saying it obviously to be uh, to be a dick, but. I do believe that, you know, we, we, this, it's an example of the false application of Darwinism, right? Darwinism is this fascinating notion, but right on its heels came social Darwinism. And social Darwinism is not, uh, you know, does not, because you call it Darwinism and because you make that false uh, similarity between what you imagine you're doing over here and what Darwinism, what evolution and that science actually is, you know, when you see that misapplication. When you apply natural selection outside of the entire context. Well, yeah, if you say like, oh, well, here's, you know, natural selection also works in, in terms of civilization or in terms of culture. And, and that is true, I think, of a lot of things that happen in in the liberal arts, which are, and I, and I think, and I think it has discredited the liberal arts because a case should have been made. And I think a lot of this happened in the 1950s. The liberal arts should have stood their ground and said, no, like we, we do traffic in the language of dreams. And that is, that is valid outside of a scientific context. But there was all this pressure on and, ha and continues to be pressure on the liberal, liberal arts to prove that they're worth anything. And so there's this recourse to science and, you know, and the, and the, no the notion that, um, that interpretations 
of of literature and of of like social chemistry are real and and so public policy can be made on the basis of those things right the whole great society the whole 60s idea and then and our continuing idea that that we can socially engineer to create a situation where everybody has the same rights for instance i mean it's all based in the idea that we can we can use engineering principles to govern humans. I can't believe you weren't elected to political office. Well, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that, that's behind my feeling about, that was behind my longstanding disagreement with psychologists. And, and, and part of that, Part of that stems from the fact that I watched a lot of people go through school and become psychologists, and every one of those people was the most mixed-up person in the class. Well, sure, but would you trust anyone who went into that study who just felt completely confident? Are you still there? Yeah. Are you, can you hear me? Oh, you know what I did? I I was getting, I was getting little pings in my headphones because people were sending me emails, and so I muted. The computer because I didn't want to get any pings, but, but then your, I must have. Yeah, your Skype was connected to your USB. Yeah, mute. I, I muted you. Sorry, sorry. So, I don't understand how things work. Uh, what, what? Where? I forget where I was. <laughs> Were we still talking about psychology, or are we going back to to creativity? You know what? I have I have a three part question I want to ask you. We're at fifty minutes of what is typically a sixty minute show. Uh -huh. Um. Do you do you want to skip the top three and let me ask this three part question, or would you like to do the top three? Oh, uh, you you're you're uh, no. Haven't our past shows gone well over sixty minutes? Oh yes, yeah. Uh, and the top three is a thing that is normally in your show where you say, "Here are the top three things that intrigue me." Now, and, but we've never done them before, right? Have we, have, have, did we ever get to the top three? We I don't believe we ever did. Right, we were still in the introductory paragraph for four three. four two hour episodes. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Uh, top three. So the so the so you go ahead and explain the premise of top three. Okay, so the top three picks are three of anything that are of interest to you in this moment. Um, they can be movies or people or Amazon products, apps, uh -huh. ideas, whatever you want. Um, and then we go back and forth, round robin, and we each present one of our three ideas and then discuss. <laughs> so the guest goes first. The guest goes first with a top, the top three. You know, I'm I resist these type of things. I read your article on why I hate top ten lists. Yeah, from yeah. 2010. <laughs> but it, but it feels like top threes. That top three should be easy. It's not, and it's not ranked. Oh, I see. It's right. just three things. All right. Uh, let's see. Top three. Top three. Um, one of my top three things uh, has to be, uh, well, so, you know, I, you've probably, if any of the, your listeners listen to my other programs, you you would know that I, in in one of the early fugue states brought about by my taking new medicine, I bought a vintage RV and uh, and proceeded to drive this vintage RV down to California 
at which point it broke down some, somewhat catastrophically. And I learned about, in the whole process of going down to California, it had many, you know, small problems that would have been catastrophic to me. The water pump goes out and the air suspension goes out and all these different things that would have just stranded me before. But there's a group of enthusiasts called the Blacklist who are a bunch of old geezers who are wrench-turning master mechanics, all of them, who also are enthusiasts of this particular brand, this GMC RV from the 70s. And at every, every time I broke down, I called someone on this black list who was in the neighborhood, and every time they came to my rescue and performed <laughs> all this magical, what to me seems magical, uh, car repair, more or less on the side of the road, and got me running again and off down the road, and kind of none of them wanted any compensation. It was just part of the culture of owning one of these RVs. Wow. And so that has seemed to me to be, it's such a wonderful example of humans kind of at their best. I'm not sure whether I would have agreed politically with any one of these people. <laughs> Does it matter though? But it didn't matter. <laughs> it was it was a thing that I have experienced many, many, many times as a as a uh, tra like a vagabond style traveler, where I was poor and I was hitchhiking or I was you know, sleeping outside even. And almost every time I met a person, they were generous. And it didn't matter what their politics were. They were they people are generous. You had common ground. Yeah, I mean. It, if it's if you if a body meets a body coming through the rye, you have more in common than you do have differences. That's always true, and I mean even even factoring in racism and classism, right? If you if you are someone in in need and you're dealing with one individual, that person is probably going to be generous unless they are really broken. And so all these guys came out and helped me. And part of it is just they like working on motors. It's what they would do on a Saturday anyway. And part <laughs> of it is like they, they believe in this mentality of pay it forward. People have helped me and now I get to help you. It's and, beautiful. Uh, it is. It's been, it's been remarkable. And, you know, and they're all, they're all old men, engineers with, with suspenders who used to work at General Electric, you know? So is your pick the RV or the blacklist or generosity in general? I feel like it's the blacklist, this particular group. I'm sure there are innumerable groups like this. I think if you're a Rotarian and you come to a town and you lose your wallet, you can call a fellow Rotarian and you'll get this same kind of... Uh, the same sort of like, hey, you're you're a member of my fraternity. Secret and handshake. That's right. So how does one go about finding this blacklist where one to purchase a GMC RV? Well, it's I mean, as you as you purchase a GMC RV, all things will become known to you. Um <laughs> right? like part of part of getting one and doing even a medium amount of like now I have this thing. It's very 
it's very confusing to own this. You look out into the world and you will just be subtly directed to <laughs> this blacklist. Wasn't that the and premise of the book, The Promise? I've never read the book, The Promise. I think it's about buying 70s RVs. Really? And then just putting out into the universe that your engine's broken uh -huh. and, it, and it fixes it. Well, through mysterious ways. I haven't read it either, I'm guessing. So now I don't have to read it because it's, <laughs> I've lived it. Um, I got I to gotta tell you, when I was um, 16 or 17, me and my friends, we, we pitched in. We bought a really crappy uh, custom van and drove it from Minnesota to California. And by way of Seattle, and Seattle was probably the highlight of our trip. Because everyone, when we got there, it was a sunny day, which apparently makes everyone in Seattle really friendly. Oh, yeah. And let's see, our our brake light had gone out. A guy followed us uh, through three stoplights holding a multicolored sign out his window in marker on whiteboard that, to tell us our taillight was out, mm -hmm. which in and of itself was just, it was amazing because that required multiple markers. It required pursuit and, and perseverance, and he let us know. We went to a shop, and the guy fixed it for free. I think he took one look at us and decided we, we couldn't pay for it. Right. So he fixed it for free, and then we walked over to a Wendy's, and the manager locked the doors to let us shower in the bathroom as, in as much as you can shower in a Wendy's bathroom. Whoa. Kind of uh, a sink shower. There's a word for it. I'm not going to use it. But, um, but it, it, like, that was this overwhelming spirit of generosity in the city in general. It was kind of the same vibe for us in Portland. By the time we got to SoCal, it, that didn't exist anymore. Uh-huh. But, but the Northwest really impressed me in that regard. And well... We, we dropped yeah. our drivetrain in... Uh, Nebraska. I spent two days in Ogallala, Nebraska. Sure, boy, you you saw Nebraska, didn't you? That was scary. Yeah, that's a that's that's the real that's the real McCoy there. And when you walk into shops, and almost every one of them says, "Oh yeah, my car broke down here ten years ago." Yeah, and now I'm living here. Yeah. <laughs> and now now I own a shop here. Yeah, yeah, that was frightening. But man, Seattle generosity was amazing that day. Well, and this is the thing about the South, right? A lot of us in the North uh, disparage the South and have these feelings that everybody down there is a hillbilly and that they're what's wrong with America and so forth and so on. But if you travel through the South, you realize that the culture down there is characterized by this kind of generosity. You know, no one would let you leave without a glass of lemonade. There are good people everywhere. Right, but, but, but you know, like there are cultures where it is it is profoundly true you know and this is true in in arab countries too where where the culture almost stipulates it requires that you be generous to travelers and strangers um you would be you would be you would be defiling your culture by not helping a a traveler in need so you know, you see this. You see this even in places where you think, "Oh, I'm just traveling through here, and this these are not my these are not my people." And then you come out of those experiences, and you're just like, "Oh my God, these are incredible! These are my people." 
So anyway, that's my number one. All right. Now, what's your number one? I mean, I don't mean, yeah, yeah, you said that they're not ordered, so. Correct. So my first one, and and it, all of mine are going to seem shallow next to your uh, fairly deep pick thus far, and I assume it will be followed by more, but my first one is an Apple TV app. I really have found that the Apple TV is a wonderful centerpiece for small group gatherings uh, when it comes to multiplayer games, uh, games like uh, there's a version of Cards Against Humanity. I think it's called like Cards for Terrible People or something. There's uh, um, a Pictionary game that I've mentioned on the show before that's awesome. And it's Sketch Party TV. And my latest find is Super Happy Fun Time for Apple TV. And it's it's a series of 13 kind of mini puzzle games that everyone can play from their own iOS device. And I, it, it is the kind of thing that people actually ask to come over to play, huh. which is more than my personality can say. Mm-hmm. Like me on my own, no one ever says, hey, let's go hang out with Brett because he's so polite and kind and really good in group environments. But the Apple TV compensates and super happy fun time is my new way to do it. Well, what do you know? Uh, my experience with Apple TV has been that I I bought one for my mom, and um, and we set it up, and it's it seemed like it wasn't entirely intuitive, and then all of a sudden there were all these TV channels, like seventeen different kinds of ESPN, <laughs> and nothing we wanted was on there, and uh, I guess eventually it just became like a like a slideshow device. <laughs> <laughs> and it took us months to figure out how to get all of our photos in there because it was just like, well, what if, can we move and put this over the no? And the little the little remote control where you have to scroll over to every every letter just and felt like admittedly annoying. But this is really the this is the techno this is the top technology here with the click click click. click but click, if click. you have an iPhone, you can actually just type on the TV. Aha! But that would require setting that up in a way that we it was above our pay grade. <laughs> my and, parents my parents bought an Apple TV, the newest model, because of multiplayer games that they played when they came to see us. Wow! And they have they do they do well figuring things out overall. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a high probability of running into one frustration that does make it any of those boxes make them end up being slideshow devices. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, I have sadly <coughs> been left behind by the multiplayer game. Um, uh, I wouldn't even call it like a wave. I mean, it's a generation, right? It was happening decades ago and i was left behind it i was left behind back when it was it was plausible that i joined well you're talking I, about like mmos you're talking about like role-playing stuff well any computer game that isn't um, i mean atari had multiplayer games well sure sure <laughs> but you know the thing that kept me out was that i spent you know all this time that i didn't have id let me tell you, I didn't also have a gaming <laughs> system, right? Like I had no permanent address. There wasn't any money in the in the, the you know in my uh, 
There was no available money for any kind of this sort hey, of stuff. I got, I got my first gaming system, an Atari 2600 in 1994 for $25. You had an Atari 2600 in 94? Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. But, you know, <laughs> that's wonderful, but it required that you have an address and a TV, at least. A TV, yes. And so... So I was just sort of, and this was part of the thing that I didn't have a big record collection because I just didn't have, I didn't have my own space. And it was, you know, it was years before I had a space that I called mine that, you know, nobody could take away. And it's why I wasn't on the internet until 1999. And it's, it's why I just never got, and I remember, you know, we would be on tour and my bass player and drummer would set up their computers and like headsets and stuff in the hotel room and they would play they would play shooter games where they're running around some town and sniping on people and you know the whatever whatever the learning curve was for them to figure out all the keystrokes to have their character bend down and jump back up it was like uh yeah I, I guess I could sit and figure all that out but <laughs> but it didn't you know it didn't it didn't pull me in quite enough to get over that hump and I remember watching people play uh San Andreas uh the uh the the sort of uh, amoral video game where you you drive around a town. Oh, you mean uh, Grand Theft Auto? Grand Theft Auto. You'd gra- you, you know, you're a, you're a criminal and you, you run yeah. around cars. I've never stuff. played, but yeah. Seemed, it was fun to watch. It, you know, like a lot of video games. I remember it in the late 80s sitting around someone on an uh, on a Apple, like a, the first Mac, right? The Mac Classic or whatever that was. Like there would be one person playing Tetris and like six people sitting in chairs <laughs> watching this person play Tetris. It was so. What about Leisure Suit Larry? I don't remember Leisure Suit Larry. Uh, early Sierra game. I see. I never. I and actually, my next pick will will continue this part, but I never got into the really detailed like first person shooters or any anything. Really, I stopped gaming for a long time, and I really only like things that are essentially Atari games. But Sierra put out a bunch of like uh, King's Quest and uh, Leisure Suit Larry and all of these games that were kind of mist style puzzle games. But Leisure Suit Larry involved hot tubs and bikinis and it was for a young man. Um, fun to but watch. With, with 8-bit graphics. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, right. Okay, so what's your number two? Let's see, my number two. Or your second pick. My second pick. Well, <coughs> you may or may not know, but in in uh, in my uh, rock and roll days, I was sponsored by the Gibson Corporation. I didn't know that, but I'm impressed. Which was which was a wonderful advantage, and the the thing was that I think back in the early '90s, if the Gibson Company decided to sponsor an artist, they would just give him a bunch of guitars, but the new owner of the Gibson company is an insane person and their new idea circa 2005 was they wouldn't give you a guitar to keep, but they would loan you as many guitars as you wanted for as long as you wanted. Hmm. And so it was, 
it was kind of a disappointment because I like to own things. Sure. But it also meant that I could go to Europe with a 59 Les Paul, you know, reissue, 59 Sunburst, a guitar I could never afford. I could play it for the whole tour, not really worry if I broke it, and then hand it back to him and be like, uh, I think for the next tour I want to take out this uh, 335 or whatever they have. So it was, it, it was and continues to be a really good relationship because I'm still... I'm still uh, endorsed by them, and I, you know, I don't really tour that much. But if I if I needed a guitar for anything, they would have them there available for me. And the because the Gibson Company is owned by a crazy person, they he, it, the company keeps doing these things where they buy other companies. They bought Slingerland drums. They bought Kramer. They bought. Uh, Steinberger, you know, all these things where it's like, really? I mean, you're the Gibson company. If you just made less Pauls, you'd be fine. You don't need to buy Steinberger. They weren't competing with you. But, you know, all these business decisions that seem like decisions that are being made in a boardroom by people who went to business school who have no real connection to the brand of Gibson guitars, which is legendary and should be treated with respect. And instead just thinks of it as like, well, you know, Gibson Skoll. We bought Skoll chewing tobacco and we bought, you know, we bought Goodyear tires. So it's the Gibson Skoll Goodyear Company. Boo. Uh, but, you know, and this is one of the nice things about being a Gibson and Dorsey is that I also slag them off all the time. And it's not like the board of directors ever, they don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> but they bought this company uh, recently that makes microphones and they aren't microphones like you know like microphones that you would use really in a in a big studio they're uh they're like podcast microphones and, you know, these modern USB microphones, let's call them that. And I, I, the company is called Neat. And they gave me this microphone that I'm talking into right now called the B-Caster. And it's USB mic. And it's enabling me to podcast from my bed, which is a thing that I never thought I would be able to do. And, you know, I could probably record vocals on it right now sitting here in my in my bed this should be in their it, tagline right and it just it plugs right into my laptop i mean all of this is happening wirelessly it just it's it really is i i am such a critic of technology because it all feels so beta all the time you know my iphone just still feels beta like come on you guys stop rushing out new ios's and make the last one work and so I'm, you know, I'm grouchy about it all the time. You get, I, you know, Apple TV and you got this dumb click, click, click to, to put in, you know, that's not a, that's not a thing that you're not going to use. You have to use it every time you interact with the thing. I, I know you don't listen to all of my bizarre ramblings, but I, I'm in the same boat and I'm probably a lot more obsessed and tied into Apple products than you are. 
but I, I have the exact same sentiment. Everything feels like it's in beta and I have endless complaints about the Apple TV remote. Yeah. Well, anyway, and, though. So my mom, you know, my mom was a computer programmer in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And she says, you know, they worked. The work that they did was to ensure that when their product went to market, it was not in beta. They worked out all the bugs. They tested right. and tested and tested Those days until are gone. there were no bugs. And she <laughs> said, everything I, you know, because my mom's 81, but she continues to be very in computers. She spends more time on her computer than I do. And she's like, everything is, everything is beta. <laughs> it's just like they are counting on you to test their bugs. You're, you know, everybody's a tester. Right. And there's no clear feeling that even all the testing that we're doing produces any change. And she's like, it's, it's so backwards and it's so antithetical to, to like principle, you know, it's this, it's, it's a, it's an avaricious capitalism that has no principle. The principle being the product that we're making, we are, we are confident isn't pre-broken for you. Um, and, you know, and Apple stuff is beautiful. I use my iPhone every day. I'm obsessed with it just like everybody else. Which you is know. why we all get so critical. Yeah, but it's just like <laughs> you've made this thing. It is lovely. You put it in my hands. What? There are hundreds. If There are thousands of people working for Apple. Is it so hard to have a room full of testers that figure out all the things that are wrong with it? So I'm looking. I, I, I looked up your, your microphone. Becaster, and it's uh, it retails at three fifty, and it yeah. looks amazing. It, it's it feels so well made. You know, you look at it, and you're like, oh, it's probably plastic, but it's not. It's like made out of metal. It's got it's got heft, and and it just it's doing this job. And it's square. Everything it's about square. it is square and angular. It's, it's very cool. I'm going to take the pop filter off and see how that does. This did that? Did I just get a little bit more high end? No, it didn't make a huge difference. There's a little pop filter on it. I'm trying to decide if it's necessary. It might only be necessary when I'm really singing my singing my demos loud. Anyway, so my number two thing is this cool little gadget that that really does work. You know, so far I have detected no bugs in it. It requires that I download no software. I just plugged it in and it is powered by the USB and it and it just goes, you know. My headphones so, are plugged into it. It has controls. Right, has separate headphone volume from the gain. What is the first selector on it with four? The first selector is mono, uh, which I am currently in. But then you can also do stereo, so you can have two people talking to the mic, and they, you know, they would be separated. You'd sit on either side of it, right? And you'd be able to make a stereo. Does track. it actually change pattern? Yeah. Wow. And then there's wide stereo where you've got four people. And then uh, focused stereo, which I presumably is like two people working really close in. Interesting. Like, ra you know, radio or, or two podcasters on a single mic. Huh. So I, you know, I recorded mono. Yeah. Always, unless I'm, I don't know when I would record, I would do a stereo mic, I guess like two people doing harmony vocals. For, for duets with Amy, man. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> she would have a nicer mic than this. <laughs> All right. Cool. So well, that's yeah, so that looks very. I've never even heard of neat microphones, so that's cool. Well, I think they're a new. I think it's all new. Uh, Everything's new. So new, new. But I. But I think it's a. Yeah, I think it's a. I mean, you know, I just. I just totally ripped into the Gibson Company a few minutes ago, but now I am really endorsing this one. This is a much better acquisition than their chewing tobacco. Yeah, venture. they should. They should never have bought School, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> they did buy this B-caster. All right. So my second pick is slightly related to my first pick. I, I have started trying to play more games on my Apple TV, but the Apple TV remote, the Siri remote, is horrendous as a game controller of any kind, even if you only need one button. Uh, so I finally buckled. I've never... My favorite controller was the original Nintendo one D-pad, two-button controller. Uh -huh. uh, and I tried to find one that would work with the Apple TV in that style. Could not. I eventually buckled and bought the Steel Series Nimbus, which looks like the, all the, you know, it's got like two joysticks and eight buttons and way too many things for my. Then there's like buttons under my fingertips, and I never, I never learned. I never went through the learning curve to play a game using a controller like that. Yeah. But I got one, and. Even for games that do not need all of those controls that I rarely use, it is a huge step up for playing games on the Apple TV. If you have any intention, even of playing something as simple as Crossy Roads, um, get a game controller. And the the Steel Series Nimbus has been on sale in a lot of places lately, and I I would recommend that one. Works wonderfully. All right. I, I that will not lead to an extended conversation. I know. No, I have I, none of the words that you used <laughs> resonated with me. I, I could not identify anything in that that I was like, oh yeah, that game controller. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So we can go to your third pick. Let's see, third pick, third pick, third pick. So now, now what are the parameters of the picks? Um, the the first rule of three picks is there are no rules. Oh really. Well, that's that's nice. Uh, let's see. My third pick, uh, given the audience of the show, I'm going to say you now mean the, that uh, ten years and under the ten year and under demographic. Yeah, I'm going to say that uh, last year, uh, a friend of mine that works at uh, Blue Origins, which is the Jeff Bezos space program, and uh, now that the now that I guess more has been revealed about blue origins i can also reveal that i went on a guided tour of the and, and i mean guided by my friend not guided by a tour guide uh of jeff bezos's space uh rocket factory where they were making not only the rockets but also the capsules for his manned rocketing rocketeering program and uh, and now my understanding is that they are they're getting very close to. I'm going to look at them. Blue Origins. Uh, they're getting very close to a launch. And um, like a like a launch with people in it. A manned launch. A manned launch. And uh, and they're you know they are trying to. 
they're trying to launch a spaceship and then what land it like land it back where it... right which is what spacex has done i think they've accomplished it successfully but I don't they... know, that, those spacex videos where their rockets almost land and then, <laughs> and then fall over <laughs> <coughs> fall over and blow up on an aircraft carrier or whatever yeah. that that's some of the best hey there's gonna be some bumps that's the some of the best internet stuff <laughs> Because you're like, they did it, they did it. And then it just, oh, oh, and then the best explosions, you know, just like film explosions. Yeah. Anyway, so this uh, this Blue Origins thing. So I've been in the capsule uh, that, that you know, that they have built for this. And they have enormous windows. And the I guess the premise is like eight people pay their money to go up into space. This is like and, suborbital flight. Suborbital yeah, sub, flight. Suborbital. Uh, but you know they're up there, they're up there in the at the cusp, and I'm just trying to picture them, I'm trying to picture these people looking out a window that's basically six feet tall by four feet wide, and trying to think how freaky that would be the entire way right just sitting on the top of the capsule ready to blast off <laughs> so uh, are you gonna and, go for it and you're just you're sitting in this window you're like huh this is you know this is like an i'm looking out of a of an observatory and then it launches into space and then you know you're up there plummeting through the through the dark edge and looking out this big window i'm just i'm trying to picture Part of what you imagine being in a space shuttle or being in a in a Mercury capsule or something is you you're just looking out a you're looking at a fairly small window, but these big windows it's a big part of the appeal. Yeah, but also a kind of unprecedented exposure to all that stuff that's going on. So it's really it's uh, it it has captivated my imagination. I imagine. Uh, no, no, redundant pun intended. Um. Uh-huh. What are you are you planning to uh to try to, to uh <coughs> finagle a, a free ride? Did I lose you? No, that was cough button. Oh cough button. Yeah. Cough button. I heard the start of the cough. Yep. Then I just had to spare everybody. So are uh, you, are you gonna go for a free ride? It feels like it is it is probably not finagleable or <laughs> if you're gonna finagle You've got to be a good friend of Jeff Bezos, which I am not. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, it's going to be an expensive ride. And also, I feel like I feel like being an early adopter of private spaceflight, <laughs> maybe not where I'm going to be an early adopter. I don't know if you watch The Simpsons anymore, but the last episode was about uh, Lisa volunteering for one of the early flights to colonize Mars. Oh, really? It was, yeah. It, it covered this, a lot of this, actually. I've had this discussion uh, fairly recently with some friends. One of one of the listeners to Radical on the Line is a Air Force lieutenant colonel. And we he and I have struck up a friendship. And at one point within the last year and a half, he and I and Jonathan Colton and our, our good friend David Reese – who's the host of Going Deep with David Reese, a t- TV show on the, uh, what, the 
details channel? No, the one of those men's magazines has a channel. I, I don't remember to, what. To me, everything's on Hulu, Netflix, or it's not at all. So Right, right. Well, so David has a wonderful television program, and the four of us were sitting in an airport. We're sitting in an airport departure lounge in Ethiopia or something like that. And the topic of a Mars, a manned mission to Mars, uh, it was probably David who brought it up. He was like, would you go on a one-way trip to colonize Mars. You're going to go there and you're going to be, you're never going to come back. You're going to become the first generation of Mars colonists. And I was like, no, I don't think so. That's not, it's not my game. And uh, the Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, his name is Matt Martin, like no hesitation. He was like, yes, absolutely. And then Jonathan Colton, I think surprised me or surprised us all by, by saying like, yeah, I think so. I think I would do that. And it became a, for me immediately a brand new litmus test. <laughs> right. And it's one of those, you know, you ask people questions like, well, what would you do? Uh, invisibility or flight, you know, that type of thing where there is clearly a right <laughs> answer. And it's like, if you say, the wrong answer, then you're just, it's a litmus test of whether you're a dummy or not. So even after consideration, your answer is still no, you don't think so? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to be the first colon, colony, uh, you know, the first colonist of Mars. Uh, mm. it, like I, I might want to visit Mars, but I'm a person, I'm a, I'm a civilization person. I think I'm more prone to say yes to a one-way trip than to a visitation. Wow, wow. I, I, there's something very appealing about just, it's almost, it's like suicide. Like you just, you kill your earth self. Yeah. But you don't have to, you know, you get to be a hero to all the people you leave behind. Well, right. And you're, and you, now you have this Mars self that never existed before. Right. And, and you get Mars to do self? something big yeah. and you get to get away from everything that ever dragged you down. And your Mars self will be remembered, right? right. Remembered forever. <laughs> so, so I think that I think that this this it is a litmus test. I think every one of your listeners right now is asking themselves, yes or no, would I do this? And I think probably there are a lot of people that were like instantaneous yeses, and then probably a lot of people that are like, no, thank you. But very curious to me, I don't, because I don't think there is a right answer. I think it's indicative of a personality type. I or, think that's true. You know, indicative of a kind of, are you this sort of. And I consider myself an explorer, but see, I consider I consider Mars exploration to be vital to the future of humanity. Agreed. So there's this importance to the idea. If if you said you know we just want to send somebody out to float in space and see what happens, and you'll die there, not as appealing to me. Yeah, but well, and it se it seems to me that the first generation of Mars explorers, and I, I'm not influenced by that movie The Martian because it's self-evident that the first generation should be geologists and you know <laughs> science, and science people and, yeah and plant biologists <laughs> no right? psychiatrists in, in order to colonize Mars we should figure out what the what is there for us to use yep. and how we can build a sustainable thing there so to have like to have a musician on board I guess it's you know Everybody sits around in kumbayas <laughs> at night. Doesn't I wouldn't but, feel vital. But 
the musical mind is a very analytical, creative mind. True. And that kind of creativity is imperative to survival. True. A and book I, and can't teach you how to live on Mars. I think a big part of, of being on Mars would be reporting back to Earth. And that would be a thing that you would need poets. Right? You, you, you would, would do that with finesse. Yeah, sure. You you know, you, you put a you put a geologist in front of a camera and he's like, Well, we found some <laughs> lot of different kinds of material. But you know, you need somebody that's like, Oh, when the sun comes up over the horizon in Mars, it's you know you could send status haikus back. Yeah, come to Mars. <laughs> Vacation capital of the solar system. <laughs> okay. All right, so that's my third. Sounds good. My last pick is oh, okay. So I I've probably mentioned this one before. Uh, I don't care. Um, I, in addition to being bipolar, I have pretty severe ADHD, oh. and uh, in recent in in the last year, my meds have been cut off for no reason other than oh, we don't give stimulants to adults. Um, that that, no one, has that always been true or is that a new thing? That's a new thing. Apparently my previous psychiatrist of five years had retired. They stuck me with a new guy. He cut everything, left me unable to work entirely. Homer. I, I left him. They put me with someone like this temporary emergency psych crew and they just continued his philosophy. And now I'm kind of stranded. So for almost a year, I have been working at max, like, 40% of my standard work ability. And yeah, extremely. But the only thing that's gotten me through is uh, kind of a, a permeation of the, or a permutation of the um, Pomodoro method, which is work 20 minutes, break, break five, and then do that for four cycles and then take a longer break. And this kind of structured, okay, if I can just work on this for 20 minutes, that's all I need to think about right now. I don't need to think about the whole project, the plan, the overwhelming number of variables. I just think about 20 minutes. And that keeps me able to at least survive and make enough money to scrape by. Um, and the app that I've really enjoyed for that is a Mac app called Zen Timer that actually puts a tree on your screen uh, like transparent background looks you can make it look like it's right on your wallpaper and as the 20 minutes passes the leaves fall off and when the timer ends it's just leaves across the bottom of your screen and then it breaks and then the it regrows for the next 20 minutes and uh it's it's something that is visually interesting i mean it's it's a basic timer you could do it with a stopwatch but zen timer adds a certain amount of visual interest to me that keeps me um I guess entertained, happy while I'm working. So that would be my third pick. Right on. An app wreck. A wreck, an, a wreck of an app. <laughs> REC, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, like that seven minute workout app, which I used last year for a while. Sure. Uh, where, where it's a thing that you could just do by looking at a clock, but instead it's an app and. And I found that that was really, I thought it was actually really useful. Daniel Jalcut had a, he, he's the guy who makes Mars edit. And, oh, uh, I know, I know Daniel from the, uh, from the Twitter. Yeah. Daniel Punkass. That's right. Um, he had an app. He probably still does. It's, it was called Flex Timer and you could build in these timer sequences. And it was, I love that app. It was great. But yeah, I mean, 
you can do a lot. I mean, timing is a very basic function of computing. Yeah. Uh, um, but making it elegant and fun to use and flexible is uh, that that takes more of a, a musical approach to coding than there you go than just straight up computer science. You know, timing is a very important part of music. Yes. Yes. Uh, do you want to ask me the question that you you almost posed, or are we we're well over our? Uh, I, 60 I will minutes. ask you the short version of that question. Off the top of your head, name uh, the first of your favorite lyricists that come to mind. Oh, uh, well, I would say the first one that came to mind was Elliot Smith. Ah, I'm with you on that. Right? I mean, Elliot Smith, there was a moment of disappointment I had after being a fan of Elliot Smith for a long time, which was when I realized that he was talking about heroin more than I thought. I knew he was talking about heroin. <laughs> I think that was my attraction to the whole thing is I knew he was talking about heroin. Yeah, and I, I I knew he was too, but then a lot of the a lot of the metaphors you know, it's like when Axel Rose says he's dancing with Mr. Brownstone, you don't have any <laughs> trouble understanding right, what he's saying. Right. And there was a lot of what Elliot was saying that was like, Oh yeah, yeah, right, you're a junkie. But but then some of the other lines that I really liked when I when I studied them more carefully, I was like, oh, he's talking about heroin here also. But but he he did it metaphorically enough. Yeah. That it wasn't blatant. It wasn't obvious. And to me, that's as good as talking about a girlfriend or, you know, your own life. Yeah, I I I liked it, but you know You just cough buttoned, are you okay? Oh, there we go. Thank you. When you, uh, I liked, I, I appreciated that he had done an artful job of of making uh, the heroin talk into something that was, you know, that had initially captivated me. But it's the, it's the old problem of like, if you find the artist, if the artist turns out to be no good, or I mean, that's the Bill Cosby problem, right? He's uh, inarguably was one of the great comedians. Yeah, and then uh, turns tarnished out legacy. Yeah, it turns out he's reprehensible. How do you evaluate his art throughout right. the years? Uh, and, you know, like heroin addiction is a thing, is a topic that I have been, that a lot of musicians in my circle have covered over the years, right? It, it was a big part of my musical upbringing. And if I, you know, if I wanted to, think about heroin and learn more about it. I had ample opportunity a long time before <laughs> Elliot Smith came along and I had my personal experiences with it and, you know, lost friends to it, the whole, uh, the whole spectrum. So, so it was just less interesting to me, right? If he had been talking about a girlfriend, it would have been more interesting to me because there's, it's just more, I feel like art is better when it has, uh, a general usefulness. See, that's what I was just... talking about, though, where things, some things just didn't resonate with me at the time. Uh, and for me, I mean, as a longtime heroin addict and and someone who's lost a lot of people and lived that life, that music, those lyrics, they made sense to me. Right, right. I'm sure they did. And And I can totally get how someone who maybe saw that world from the outside and chose to avoid it yeah. would not appreciate the lyrics in the same way. Yeah. Agreed. So agreed. Yeah. And 
and so so that was that was one experience but i but i felt like the the body of his work was so was just lyrically so wonderful yep and he was able to convey so much so much humanity and you know i i met him a couple of times i know a lot of people that knew him well and he's he was a sort of a, almost a cliche in the in the sense that he was very difficult to approach and almost <laughs> impossible to know personally but here in his, within his art he was able to be so human and that's the best lyrics in my estimation and you know there are songs of his that I just go back to and back to and back to uh so you want to know so, what mine would be uh, what what which ones were yours well, my favorite lyricist, if you ask me, top of my head every time would be Leonard Cohen. Right, you know, which is I mean, Leonard Cohen is a great is a great example where he's actually a poet. He's claiming to be a poet. He's working within a poetic, like that's poetry, and then he found a way to make it into music. Exactly, like you can read his album lyrics as a book. Yeah, and yeah. never hear the songs. And what's it, what's, you know, I write all of my lyrics first as poems and they are shite poems, right? They're no good as poems. But you don't write them for the music and I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I write them as poems. And then through the process, and I've seen that happen on working on this record, third or fourth edit of, of the lyrics, I still have not fit them to music, but I, but they have become what I can recognize as like pretty good poems. Yeah. Most of the lyrics I've written at one stage in their evolution, I, you know, I wouldn't have been embarrassed to submit them to the New Yorker as a poem. Nice. And then that process of continuing to refine so that they are lyrics is a, is a, you know, is a, even deeper dive. And what Leonard Cohen was great at was he just kept going, but kept going as a poem. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how it's a different process because as I make them into lyrics, they stop being poems at a yeah. certain point. Well, and, his was an editing process too. Oh, I mean, had, just severely editing everything. If you look a, at the a, original lyrics for, um, hallelujah, or if it be your will, he wrote basically books of lyrics for those songs. Yeah. And then just shaved and shaved and trimmed and carved down to what was published. And it's amazing. I couldn't yeah. take that kind of scalpel to my own work. Well, and he's, you know, he is a, he's a poet that's working. He's telling a story in his poems that's more, you know, I, a lot of people are hard pressed to know what the story of any one of my songs is. They, they see it as, I mean, what my intention is is that it is it, uh, the lyrics are impressionistic. That every generalized, every line, even in their specificity, is meant to be taken as an individual thought. Then you string them together, and, and you're you're reading an emotional story rather than a than a, a literal one. Yeah, but there are great songwriters. I mean, Elliot Smith again, another example who is. Telling an actual story. You start at the beginning, you get to the end, you know it's been narrated for you. There's no 
there's no sense of like what happened there you know <laughs> like no he went for a walk he was in a parade he uh you know this is a story about his his relationship with his mom or whatever and leonard cohen same type of thing and that that eludes me all right you know i don't try for that i much more try for try for a a uh i mean impressionistic is the best i can do it, it you are you are meant to be you're meant to have experienced an impression of this relationship and an impression of that time. And then you fill in the blanks of whether that applies to you and whether you have a similar story. I think you could apply uh, pointillism to it. Yeah. I, I, so you I'll, get like an impression from a distance, but then you you drill in to find yeah. all of these disparate Dots. Yeah, the little pieces, and yeah. you know, if you zoom in on any and on any tiny six by six portion of an impressionistic or a pointillist painting, right? It would be it would stand on its own in a way. It would yeah. just be like that's a weird little <laughs> little block of dots of different colors. So yeah, I mean, people ask me routinely, like, what am I meant to take away from this song? And I say, yeah, zoom, you know, digest the the little lines and the way the lines interact with each other and the, the way that they foreshadow or call back to one another and then zoom way out and put the, put all those feelings that that's that the song inspires and, you know, put them on like a jacket and feel like, and just feel, feel those feelings. Cause they're all, every one of them is a feeling. I feel like uh, this would make a, a great entirely, maybe the next show, just analyzing different, different artists approach to lyrics yeah yeah well i mean because a lot of people would say a lot of people that kind of write like me would say ah the lyrics don't mean anything or whatever you know kurt cobain was always saying that his lyrics didn't mean anything but he was the same way right he's mm -hmm. not in his songs he's not telling a story he's, no but if you listen to something in the way well something in the way is, a, is an example <laughs> of a story Right, I mean, the story is is clear. But the story is not the story. Story is not the story. Right? I'm not. I'm not calling Nirvana's work deep, but you can listen. You can get the same kind of. You can get a a, a high level impression of the song, but then you can after you watch that Kurt Cobain documentary that came out, uh, all of a sudden you can listen to that song again and hear each line as its own story. It's actually very, uh, uh, it was moving for me once I had the context for it. Yeah, I found that movie un unbearable. Uh, and, you know, I didn't like Kurt Cobain being dis demystified for me. Like, yeah, that scene where he's holding his baby and he's nodding off was just like, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. But but I do think that, I do think their music is deep. I do, I do find a lot of meaning in his lyrics and always did, you know, it connected with me right away. And I hated the, the, I hated their pop acceptance. Yeah. I really, I really felt like that music was speaking directly to me and part of it. And I think it probably influenced my, uh, well, the excitement I felt that I didn't have to, because I had been writing narrative songs up until that point. Man walks into a bar and he says to the bartender, hey, and the bartender says, what, you know, just like. He said, howdy. I said, hi. Right. Sorry. And, and, uh, and I was able then to, 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 you know, to put a cloud of ideas up and, 
and pull them down to apply to events in my life. And I didn't feel like I had to walk you through. Uh, I could just do what I was doing and, and you could walk yourself through or go. So that's a, yeah, we could do a whole separate podcast of that and we, we should, uh, we should put it on the books. I, I will do that. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for podcasting from your bed in dire straits and, uh, with a dry heave and a cough button. Yeah. First time I ever used a cough button too. podcasting from bed with a stuffy nose and, and my first, my first cough button. Well, so. we, we greatly appreciate your perseverance. Yeah, thank you, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, you, people can find you on uh, Twitter. Yep, John Roderick. But also, you know, now that now that I'm on this side of it, look for look for new music. When I when I have a when I have an album done, I'm going to come back on here. And I'm going to tell everybody that they have a moral obligation to buy it. That will be great. Yeah, and also look up Roderick on the line with Merlin Mann, which is amazing. What else do you have? Uh, well, I'm doing a podcast now with Dan Benjamin called Roadwork, which is also very fun uh, that I recommend everybody listen to. Roadwork, it, you know, you're going to get a lot of, you're going to have your fill of, <laughs> uh, of two white guys talking, but, but uh, Roadwork covers a lot of stuff that Roderick on the line doesn't. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and then look for a long winter's record. Awesome. Finally. Yeah, I mean, don't look for it anytime soon. But Long-awaited, long winter's record. There's a lot that has to happen between now and then. All right. And I am TT Scoff everywhere, Twitter, et cetera. And uh, you can find me at brettterpster.com. Go leave some iTunes reviews. We, we, we love hearing from you. I love hearing from you. I'm, I shouldn't talk in a plural third person. That's weird. But, um, but yeah, I'd love to hear from you. And uh, thanks again to John. And we'll see everybody in a couple of weeks. Yay. So, for your listeners who aren't familiar, my last full album came out in 2006, probably before most of them were born. And um, since that time, I've had a lot of trouble writing lyrics i have to stop you do you think my listening audience is 10 years or younger well you know i'm not sure what i'm not sure who listens to podcasts now <laughs> okay but it seems like whatever the generation after millennials is have we decided what we're calling them i i don't know i think yeah. they're the uh the last generation is what the we last, call them. that's right uh next generation let's call them that uh, they, yeah, the, I guess generations don't really get a name until they get to be 18 and start annoying people. Unless it's Star Trek. Right. 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 They were, they, the next generation that they were born with that. Right on.